romantic is not as romantic as you might think. The word romantic, to describe the likes of flowers and love and boxes of chocolate, is a neologism. Although Romeo and Juliet might be the most romantic play ever written, it would be inconceivable to imagine Juliet exclaiming, that's so romantic, upon receiving an engagement ring or a dozen roses from her Romeo. When we read the love story of Jacob and Rachel, we tend to assume that the Torah is celebrating Jacob's unvarnished affection for Laban's second daughter. Who of us can help but wipe a tear from our eyes when we read that the seven years Jacob worked for Laban felt like a few days? So intense was his love for Rachel. Yet, as I argued in episode 7, season 1 of The Shrift, I am not so sure that the first readers of the Torah would have been as love-struck by this story as we are today. Here, Jacob had another wife, Leah, who was perfectly fertile, capable of bearing them scores of children to carry the monotheistic torch into future generations. Perhaps she was not as beautiful as Rachel, but for Jacob, God's chosen one, surely there were more important considerations than beauty and love. Could Jacob really be so foolish to squander his energy on a barren woman at this critical juncture in world, nay, in cosmic history, the Torah seems to ask. To better understand the extent, if any, to which the Torah introduces skepticism to Jacob's lovesickness for Rachel, I have brought Rabbi Mayer Goldberg onto the shrift. Mayer is the director of Rutgers Jewish Experience. He has been working at Rutgers University since 2004 in Jewish outreach, teaching young Jewish students about the rich heritage which they may have grown disconnected from amid the tussle of our highly secularized culture. He runs courses, organizes trips, sets up Shabbat meals, and meets with students one-on-one to help them get in touch with their identity as Jews. When I was a student at Rutgers, I met with Mayer in the student center about once a week to study passages from the Talmud. Although Mayer grew up modern Orthodox, he maintained a strong foothold in the secular world as well as a child. His grandfather, Harry Walker, ran a speaker's agency, which brought many famous politicians, entertainers, and athletes into Mayer's social circle as a youngster. In addition, Mayer is a passionate fan of the Miami Dolphins. As you will soon hear, Mayer staunchly disagreed with my assessment of the Jacob, Rachel, Leah, love triangle. So, Mayor, uh, welcome to The Shrift. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, in general, uh, I've noticed as well that in the Torah, fertility is very much emphasized um, in a way that I think as moderns we can't fully appreciate because I think it's not as much of we have more control over fertility today than we used to, scientifically. And... I don't think having children is as emphasized today as it was. Um, So, for example, um, when Sarah gets pregnant at an old age with Isaac, it's hailed as a miracle. And she laughs, of course, and names her child Yitzchak after this laughter. And if 
there are many other stories where a, a woman's ability to have children is, is seen as a, the greatest gift from God. By contrast, when a woman can't get pregnant, if she's barren, so to speak, that is seen as the ultimate tragedy for a woman. And we have many other stories in the Torah where the, the story starts out, there was a woman and she couldn't, she was barren and she had to figure out a way to deal with that. And I think that this, this worldview of, of fertility is something that, I mean, personally, I don't know, I don't encounter women who are, who we're all mourning over because they can't have children and women that we're absolutely celebrating because they can. So I think that this emphasis on fertility is something that, at least in my community, isn't nearly much as worshipped or emphasized as it was uh, in the Torah. So I guess I just want to ask you, like, why is fertility so important in the Torah? Why is it that uh, we have this, the Torah is so celebratory for women that can bear children and men, and so uh, lamenting of women that cannot? Where, where is that coming from? Uh, it, it's really a, a difference of a fundamental wor- worldview, uh, contrasting the postmodern world, uh, which informs a lot of the worldview today, and um, the traditional uh, religious world, which is really informed, which is really the, which is based off of the Torah's ideas, you know, both for Judaism and Christianity, and, and uh, to a large extent, the Western world, you know, uh, has strong influences from that as well. So, why would someone want to have children in the Torah? Well. Um, it could be economics, right? That's a very crass way of looking at it. But in the Torah, it's pretty clear that that wasn't the reason why they, they viewed it that way. Uh, so Avram gets, Abraham gets this message from God. He wants basically for Abraham to have this people that's going to inhabit the land of Israel and um, carry on God's mission, bring God to the world. And Abraham sees that mis- mission very, very clearly and he has a partner, life partner, Sarah or Sarai at that point, she was called, but she's, she's barren. And he doesn't, he's, he's getting this promise that his children will inhabit this land and they'll bring God's name and recognition of God to the world and bring blessing to the world. Yet he doesn't see how that's supposed to happen because he has no children. So when he has a child, Yitzchak, in that case, Isaac, he's, he's so excited. They're both so excited because now their legacy, the pur- their purpose of, of their life is now continued, and their hopes are through uh, through this child, through Yitzchak. And that's, by the way, why uh, when Avram is is tested and God says, "Well, I want you to go ahead and slaughter uh, Yitzchak," um, it's the greatest test in the world, you know, because everybody asks, "Well, you know, Jews throughout history have, have been willing to sacrifice their themselves and their children for God. Why is this unique?" But the answer is, is that Avram had been told that you know about this entire future that's going to happen, and he waits so long until he's hundred years old. And finally, him and Sarah have this child. And then, you know, it seems like all their hopes, uh, which previously had been dashed, are now energized and in, in this child, Yitzchak. And then God says, no, just kidding, I want you to sacrifice him. So that's why it was such a test, which Avram was able to overcome. And of course, as the story goes, he didn't actually sacrifice him. And then this story continues with Yitzchak, Isaac, and Rivka, his wife, Rebecca, who also can't have children. And the same story happens again, where you know it's understood they they're going to be the patriarchs and matriarchs of this nation. But where are those children going to come from? Where's the nation going to come from? And then they have you know a, a Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau. 
And so therefore, every time there's a child, when, when Jacob goes ahead and, and wants to marry Rachel and Leah, Rachel and Leah, it's not simply that uh, uh, Yaakov saw someone, in my view at least, it's not simply that Yaakov saw, Jacob saw someone beautiful in Rachel and therefore he loved her. He loved her because he saw a legacy coming through her. Now, why does the Torah use beauty? So the, the deeper sources, the Zohar actually writes that Rachel, Rachel, is described in external terms because she, she brings out godliness in the revealed world, in the external world. And that's why the Torah uses external terms. And you'll see that, that her son, Yosef, Joseph, her firstborn, is also described very much in external terms. And that's why he the, becomes the viceroy in Egypt, which is the preeminent superpower of the world. Because the job of Rachel, Rachel, and, and that tribe, and those tribes that, that she bears, right, Yosef, and then uh, Benjamin, Benjamin, is to bring out uh, godliness in the revealed world. And Leah, who's, who's, uh, who is, is the other one, she's the other side of the coin, She's, uh, she represents the inner world. That's why she's described in terms of, you know, not, not particularly attractive. Her eyes are soft, and which seems to indicate something negative, in, in, you know, visually. But what ends up, ends up happening is, is that Leah is the one who's revealing God in the inner world. So Yaakov loves Rachel because he, she bears children because they build a life together in the external world, the world outside of the land of Israel. And then, of course, as they're going to enter the land of Israel, Rachel dies, because she's not supposed to be his wife outside the land of Israel, only in the, uh, only, I'm sorry, she's not supposed to be his wife in the land of Israel, only outside the land of Israel, in the, in the external world. And when they come into the, into the land of Israel, in the internal world, that's when uh, Leah is supposed to be the primary wife, because she's supposed to represent and bring out Yaakov's uh, abilities in the internal world. And that's going to be the legacy as well. Okay, um, a lot of really I just, interesting points. I just threw a lot at you there. Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, I just want to uh, take a step back. Well, first to the fertility question. So I totally understand your point, and I think that's, I mean, it's not your point. I think it's pretty much the truth that for the patriarchs and matriarchs, like the stake, the, the world was at stake, right. civilization was at stake if they didn't have children. Right. So that makes total sense that, Fertility right. is super important, right. the most important. However, I do want to push back a little bit because I've noticed also in the prophets, we have many, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but maybe you can, where women that just, she was barren, what a tragedy. Right. She prayed to God and then she got pregnant. Right. That, what, that, would, be, that would be Samuel's mom, uh, mother, right. We Hannah, just, right. right, Hannah, and, and, uh, and she's, of course, tortured by her, uh, by her co-wife, co uh, Panina. Right, and these are Alcana's two wives. So that's a perfect example of what you're referring to. Exactly. And I also think even in the Rachel and Leah story, you know, Rachel feels ashamed that she can't have children. Not, as I see it, not just because she can't prolong the civilization, the, 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 the bloodline, but just like there's something wrong with me. I'm not, you know, I'm not healthy. I'm not doing my task as a woman can you is this coming where is this this emotion coming from so to speak is that also just I mean, how do you explain these other stories well i think that um a person's first of all each person is their own world so it's true that, they're, that the, na the stake of the nation ostensibly would not be at stake if they don't have any children but the stake of their world and their legacy and who they are they would see as something you know of, of, of being lacking if they couldn't have any children and I think that's true even today uh, and that's true I think on some level in, uh, certainly in the religious world but even in the secular world 
a person wants to have a sense of continuity, a sense of legacy, um, that, that, and if they don't have children, they, they sense that they're missing that, um, you know, th that presumes that there's something bigger than themselves that they want to be able to, to continue. And so in the postmodern world where maybe there isn't anything really bigger, then, then it's not that important. But, um, but it's even more than that. I think that, that many, uh, it's important because uh, when a person is younger, they're 25, 30 years old, so there's a sense of fun and excitement in, in the here and now of, of what they're doing in life, and that's something that they really focus on. But once you hit 35, 40, you, there's, the, the person's focus really changes, and the things that animate you when you're younger don't really animate you when you're older. And a person could feel very empty, or they could shift their, their, their focus and say, you know what, there's something much bigger that I'm living for that I need to feel fulfillment through, and that could be building a, a family and, and having someone to give to and to, to convey values to, to convey, to, to be able to, to, to love and, to, and to, to do kindness with. And, and that's really the spark of the divine that's really within each of us that we really want to connect to. And um, that's really why it's important even today, I think, for many people who you know, are struggling with infertility to be able to have children. Because they, they, they feel, besides for the continuity part, they need to, they, you know, they need to have something else in their life to, to fill up with purpose and meaning and, and giving. Where is that? Uh, well, we're going to get later to the contemporary issues. That's a huge topic. I'm very excited to talk about that. But just in terms of the Torah, is that in the Torah, this idea of that the importance of having children in an individual level is to enlarge your own world and to give meaning to your own life and to kind of, is that in the Torah? Uh, I think or is that just interpretation it, 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 I, I suppose it, it could be seen as interpretation I mean the rabbis say from the, the verse in Psalms Olam chesed the world is created with kindness and what that means in, in Jewish philosophy is is that the whole reason the entire reason that God created the world was because God doesn't God what is God God is the being from which everything else comes from so by definition this infinite being from that which everything else comes from is not lacking anything we can't give God anything so all God could do is give. So if all God could do is give, then the entire reason why God is creating the world is to give to others. So that, now what is God giving? The greatest gift that he can give, which is himself, right? The greatest kindness, the greatest thing that you can give is yourself. So therefore, every human being has an innate desire to be able to give of themselves to somebody else. And that becomes the purpose of life, which is to be able to do kindness to others. Now, it's a skill to figure out, you know, how to do that and what's the way of doing it. That's really what the Torah is based off of. But so that's really the idea of, but the most basic, you know, way of, of us fulfilling that is, is through having children. And that's why the first commandment in the Torah is puravut, which means be fruitful and multiply. Right. I thought that's what you were going to say. Yeah. First. Yeah. So this be fruitful and multiply, it's a very well known uh, quote from the Torah. From the first chapter. Yeah. And that says it all, right? In a way. Right. In other words, this is the whole purpose of be fruitful and multiply, not simply just to fill up the world, which is part of it but actually to become a partner with God in, in, in the realm of giving. You are listening to The Shrift, Interview 7 with Mayor Goldberg, Director of Rutgers Jewish Experience, Layet Saab. started to speak about, I mean, as I read the story, it's basically 
Jacob has two women. One is good at fertility and one is good at love. One he's in love with, just so everyone knows, um, he has six children with, well, actually seven. He has his first, I think, four children with Leah before any other. And Rachel doesn't have, Rachel has, he has two children with Rachel and seven with, with Leah. Right. And the two he has with Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin are sort of at the very end of the, the, the row. And Rachel actually dies when she, uh, in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. So obviously Leah was much more of a, was much more uh, successful for lack of a better word, in terms of bearing children than Rachel. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is Rachel that Jacob seems to highly prefer throughout his life. And just as an example, when he goes to march against Esau, his brother, to kind of potentially go to battle with him, he puts Rachel all the way in the back where she, she'll be most protected. Uh, so... He seemed to love Rachel the most. Um, and I guess, yeah, so what does it, why does the Torah, um, I, I read it to say, okay, maybe, well, okay, why, in your opinion, does the Torah have, what is the Torah trying to convey by having these two women and Jacob is, prefers the one with whom he's madly in love over the one who's, giving him lots of children? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, Some of the sources, I'm going back to the, the, some of the deeper sources seem to indicate, and you see this from the story, is that uh, Yitzchak, Isaac, and Rebecca have these two boys who are going to be like their legacy in this line that goes back to Abram and Sarah, Abram and Sarah. Two boys are Jacob and Esau. And Esau. Yeah. And they're both supposed to have a piece, a piece of the pie, as it were, in terms of the legacy of the Jewish people. But Esau doesn't follow the script. He's, you know, he's hunting. He's, you know, committing murder and adultery, according to the rabbinic sources. And so, therefore, he's 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 begged out. He's, you know, he's tapped out of the of the of the, um, of the match. And now it all falls on Yaakov, Jacob. And that's what. And now Rebecca recognizes this. Right? And from here, the rabbis always say that a woman has a, a greater uh, understanding of, of, of home and family uh, than a man does. And so she recognizes this, and she has to tell Yitzchak, you know, you got it all wrong. Esau, Esau is not the one who is not really part of the plan. It's really going to go through Yaakov. And so then when Yaakov, Jacob, steals the blessings, and he's got to run because Esau's going to kill him. So he's got to run out to, to uh, Rebecca's hometown, uh, where her brother Laban's running the show, and he's... Is helping to find a wife there, but the thing is, he's got to now take on the responsibility of, of what he had before, and also uh, Esau's uh, share of, of responsibility of the Jewish people. So he's got to take on two roles. So because Esau, Esau is the external one, the physical one, which also has a has a, a purpose and a, and a role in the Jewish people, but he's not fulfilling that role. Jacob has to take on that role. So he takes. So he decides he's going to go after Rachel, Rachel, because she matches the role that. He needs to play on behalf of of Esau, Esau, outside of the land of Israel, the external role. And that's why he's madly in love with her, because he sees this woman who is very external, right, described in external terms. And he says, okay, you know what, this is my role outside of the land of Israel. 
And so therefore the whole tension, the entire tension of the story is only primarily when they're outside the land of Israel. Once they're in the land of Israel and Leah, and Leah is the only wife because Rachel dies, the tension sort of falls away, except for in one story, which we can get to a little bit later, the whole story with, with Reuben and, and Billa, which we have to get to. Um, but, but in any case, uh, that's, that, and the reason is because um, Yaakov has his name changed. It comes Yisrael, which is a different name, a different purpose once he gets to the land of, uh, of, of Yisrael, of Israel. And that purpose can be fulfilled through, through Leah. But the purpose of Yaakov, uh, when he's in exile, taking on Esau's role, that has to be fulfilled through Rachel. And that's why, at least traditionally, it's viewed as the, the love and the, and the pursuit of her specifically there. Okay, that's a very different interpretation than what I'm used to. So basically, he had to, Esau was going to be in charge of outside of the land of Israel, and that is a more, I guess, uh, external kind of uh, aesthetic or superficial type of role than inside the land of Israel, which is more inward and spiritual. Uh, I, I, w- I would. It's it's not that Esau wouldn't have a, a role in the land of Israel. It's 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 sort of like the land of Israel represents the internal world of, of God in the spiritual realm, and the the outside of the land of Israel re- represents the external world. So, of course, there's Yaakov. And and Esau of Esau in both places, but the exile and the places outside the land of Israel represent this concept of externality, which Esau has a very important role to play. Mm. Yaakov represents, or Yisrael eventually, that when he's renamed, represents this internality that he's supposed to play. So, essentially, he prefers Rachel, just because they're not in Israel at that mo- at that time. And when he gets to Israel, he'll prefer Leah. Right, right. And the rabbis point out that the reason he puts Rachel in the back is not only because he, she's the most important, because, but because he knows that Esav is eyeing her. Because what if what would a what would a uh, a macho uh, guy like Esav, who's also a, a murderer and a, and a lunatic, right? What's he going to do? He's going to look for the most attractive woman there. And so clearly, he's going to go after Rachel. So he doesn't want to have Esav uh, to have any role in 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 um, in you know in seeing Rachel and, and, and desiring her because that's just going to create a mess. So he has to put her in the back to avoid that. Okay, interesting. And that, uh, that's why you'll see that uh, Yosef, or the rabbi said that Yosef sort of stands up in front of Rachel and doesn't implox Esav's view. Because, uh-huh. and, and Yosef sort of plays that role, but in a good way. Because Yosef is described also in, also in very mm-hmm. handsome terms yes. in, in the following parsha, And he's you know, raised up to the, you know, the viceroy in Egypt. And he and Yosef really is the one who takes on the role of Esau, of Esau, but in a good way. So he's the corrected Esau in that sense, and that's why the brothers are very suspicious of him, because they see this this seventeen year old kid who's like talking smack and 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 you know feels all and he's like the primary student of his of his father Yaakov, but they're like you know this guy reminds us of Uncle Esau, so that's why they they're very suspicious of him, and that sort of is the psychology of what goes into them wanting to sell him. But really, what they didn't get was is that there's nothing wrong with uh, Yosef. What he, uh, what Yosef's doing, he's really playing the role of Esau, but in a corrected, proper way. Mm, okay, I see. So I think that's something that I think in general we have a sense of Judaism as very inward and spiritual, which it is. But I think that the outward and external side maybe gets underemphasized, and right. it's important that you're. 
putting that out. Right. That 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 problem, that issue, really is is what plagues the Jewish people till today. In other words, we figure it out how to be holy and spiritual and have the holy people do that. What we haven't always figured out is how to take the godly godliness and our, our divine mission and bring it to the external world in a way where we stay true to our mission, but we also um, act and, and live and, and, and do what we do in the external world. Right. So it's almost, it's almost like why I'm a campus rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, it's an important job and a job that not enough people are undertaking, I think. So... Right. So I guess in a way, you shouldn't look at Leia and Rachel as either or, but actually as like you kind of need both, kind of like yin yang, kind of balance exactly. each other out. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting. The rabbis say that 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 um, in the story, of course, Yaakov makes a deal with Lava and Laban and says, you know, I want you to give me your youngest daughter. You know your youngest daughter uh, Rachel, and he's got to be very specific because he knows that Laban is a, is a fraud and a liar. So he's got to be very specific as to which wife he he wants. And of course, he's tricked at the end, and he's given Leah. And um, the rabbis say that really Rachel knew that this was going to happen, but she realized that her older sister Leah would be would be mortified and embarrassed if she weren't to get married to Yaakov. So the sort of like the 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 indi- indicators and the signs that they gave to each other, Yaakov and Rachel gave to each other. Uh, that it would be them that night. Uh, Rachel gives over to, to to Leah so that she she can pretend to be to be uh, Rachel and really it's Leah. Okay. So do you think there's any sense? I mean, in my lecture that I gave two years ago, I was trying to argue that the Torah is sort of giving us a warning or cautionary tale about romantic love in terms of. Jacob kind of really that love can be distracting and that here you have someone who's the leader of the patriarch of the Jewish people and I think I thought that the Torah was saying look you know there's more important things than love and Jacob is maybe acting a bit um, as many people do in, when they're in love, is a, a bit foolish by not not seeing how Leia is in the bigger picture, maybe kind of more significant in terms of at least the legacy. Is there any sense of like a kind of cautionary tale here about love, or am I misreading it? I I, the, I I agree with your point that that certainly that one has to be careful, um, you know, when one is influenced just by love and not by other factors such as purpose and goals and all those other things. It's it's hard for me to say that this is the purpose or the the lesson of this particular story, although I do agree with the principle of it certainly. Um, but it could be because I'm colored by my view of of how we study Torah and and, and how we view the oral law, so I can't. In other words, I'm coming from the perspective of how we understand the oral law. And so that, that's why there's no indicator in the Torah itself that, that the Torah is rebuking Jacob in any way for, for, um, for how he uh, you know, interacts with, um, with, with uh, Leah, really. In other words, it doesn't say anywhere that, that Jacob sinned for, for how you know, he seems to have not, so much, not such strong feelings for Leah. Right, and he does actually have many children with her, so right. I think he's, and he's even doing his duty, than, so to speak. Yeah, they're even buried together. 
So well, I, yeah, I wouldn't get to that too. Yeah. So so I think that, that that if there was a problem with what how he how he relates to her, then the Torah would be a little bit more explicit about it. But that's what I'd say. actually anticipated my next question because I wanted to ask like why did I always found it interesting that Jacob was so in love with Rachel and I mean can't even uh, you can never I mean it's just so moving and so emphasized in the Torah this love but at the end he chooses in the end of I think at the end of Bereshit the last book he we find out where he gets buried his sons take him back, his his body back to to Israel uh, to bury him, and he's actually buried. He chooses not to be buried with Rachel in Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, but actually next to Leah in Hebron. I thought that was shocked by that decision. I would think he would want to be buried with Rachel, and now Rachel's alone, and he's with Leah. So what's going on there? So the rabbis understand it that. Leah is his eternal wife, his eternal connection, because in the internal world, which is the eternity of the Jewish people, Leah is the proper mate for, for, for uh, Yaakov. And that's why the kingship starts off, you'll see later on in the story, when, the, when there's a kingship, it starts off with Shals, King Saul, from, who's from the tribe of Benjamin, who's Rachel's second son. But very quickly after Shal and his son um, have the kingship, it's transferred over to David, who comes from the tribe of Judah, Yehuda, which was the leader of the tribes, but also the leader of, of, um, of Leah's children as well. And so therefore the eternity of the Jewish people, you know, the Messiah, for example, is going to come through uh, Leah's line. And that's why he's going he's gonna to lay, in, 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 you know, for all eternity, be buried with her together. Whereas Rachel is, in, in, on the, is on Bethlehem, is on the road to exile. And what that means is in the book of Jeremiah, uh, you'll see that the Jews, as they're, you know, after their temple is destroyed and every, all their hopes and dreams have been dashed and you know, everything is destroyed, everything is gone, they're being led out to exile. And they go to, they go, and wh- where do they go? They go past uh, the, the tomb of, of Rachel to pray over there because she's the mother of the Jewish people when it comes to exile, to the, the, the outside world, the world outside of the land of Israel. And so they know they're going to her world now, and so that's why they pray to her. And that's why God has this conversation with her in, in Jeremiah in chapter thirty one, and he's and he's and he says God's the prophet says you know Kol Nishma. There's a, a voice on high heard. Rachel Mavak Al Rachel is crying for her children. She's weeping, and God says Yesh Sachar Like you're doing a good job, and I'm going to pay you back. In other words, Veshavu Banim Magulam. The children will come back to their land, but you're going to take care of them. Your prayers will will hold them through. Uh, when they go outside the land of Israel, but when they come back, they're, they're going to eventually make it back. So she's the mother of the Jewish people outside the land of Israel, but in the land of Israel, um, that she's it's really um, Leah's uh, show. And this really this um, idea is something I heard from Rabbi David Arlovsky, who's actually a, a famous rabbi and podcaster based out of Israel, although he's American. He says if you look at it throughout history, you'll see this this balance, this dance of the you know the exile world being from the children of of Rachel, but the, the internal world being from the children of Leah. So one example he gives is, 
you know, the story of, of Purim, which happens in Persia, is the two, the two main uh, protagonists of the story on the Jewish end are Esther and Mordechai, who come from Benjamin, uh, right? And that's really coming from Rachel's source. Whereas the story of Hanukkah, right, which is the other holiday in the, in the Jewish world that's rabbinic, happens on, in the land of Israel with a very clear and open miracle, which Purim did not have. Purim had a, had no, did not have an open miracle. Hanukkah is an open miracle, the miracle of the, of the lights. That happens with the Maccabees, who are the children of, of Levi, of Levi, who was, who was uh, coming from Leah. And so that's the same idea that, that the external world, the world of exile, is the realm of Rachel, but the internal world is the realm of Leah. Yeah, I never knew about this um, this dichotomy, so to speak, between Rachel and Leah. Actually, um, there's many places. Orlovsky shows this in many places throughout uh, throughout the Tanakh. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, so that's just an example. Um, okay, I think I probably already know the answer to the next question, but I'll ask it anyway. So, uh, as I think, as Americans, we sort of have a love for ranking things like best uh, top ten, like. Uh, you know, hummus places in, in New York and, and like top 10, uh, whatever, uh, uh, you know, uh, bagel places and this kind of stuff, the best one, number one, number two, number three, right? Also in sports. Right. And of course, you know, we don't have in soccer that in Europe, they have games that end at a tie. Right. And for Americans, that's like unthinkable. I mean, we do have it occasionally in football. <laughs> right. Very, very rare. And people ties as bad as a loss. Disappointed. Yeah. Because there has to be winner and loser, right? Right, right. And, be a resolution. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, resolution, right. And um, of course, in Europe, they're totally okay. Oh, they had a tie. It's, it's fine. Right. Um, but is there any sense in which, like, Leia is ranked above Rachel, or if she's because she had all because she had seven children versus Rachel's two? Is there any sense in which she's higher than than Rachel, or they're equal? They seem to be equal. I mean, yeah. if if you want to rank them in the sense that the Zohar uh, indicates that Leah is the eternal internal world and Ra- Rachel is the external world, but that's not really a ranking. That's really more of a, 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 a sort of a role of, of, of what their what their job is in that sense. I don't know that that indicates that um, one is better than the other. Mm, okay, very interesting. Okay, great. I can't give them one or two on the power rankings. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, is. Is number do we know number one? Is it Moses or can we not do that either? Is Moses well, above Abraham or? Well, I mean, it's a little off topic now. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the 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 rabbis do say that that uh, it's a fundamental idea that Moses was the greatest prophet in that right. sense, only because Moses, uh, the Talmud says, has uh, you know sees what God wants of him through a very uh, clear lens, where the other prophets have an unclear lens. They sort of have to interpret everything. You know, Moses. So in that sense. In the in the prophecy power rankings, Moses is clearly number one, yeah. Uh, because because but because he's the one who's really bringing the fundamental Jewish law to the people, and so our entire you know Torah and our entire uh, sense of being really comes through him in that sense. question like uh, you're in a world I mean compared to my world where there's a lot more 
young people getting married, I would say. And I've, uh, of course, I've seen Stissel. I don't know if you have. Uh, and, you know, you see how children or, you know, young people are advised uh, who they should marry, what's important, um, what to look for. And I'm curious, you know, what is more emphasized, like love or ability to have children? And I'm, I probably should have asked before because obviously it's not just the woman that has to be fertile, but also the man equally. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, which is more emphasized, like love or fertility, I guess, in, in terms of guiding a young person on who to marry? So, I mean, pragmatically, there's not really, for, in most circumstances, a way to know who's fertile and who's not. I mean, it's, it's just, right. you know, it's, the question is, is the person healthy, uh, you know? Right. But uh, it's interesting. I once, we once asked um, the, the, the dean and the spiritual advisor of, of my yeshiva that I went to, the Lakewood Yeshiva, his name was Rabbi Solomon, Ramathaseo Solomon, who's a, a great uh, Jewish thinker and speaker. Um, is so it, we we assume the case of the purpose of marriage is to have kids, and he says no, it's not. He said the purpose of marriage is to be able to build a world together and to become become one and to and to and to really connect with each other and, and fulfill your purpose in life together to have goals in life with which to fulfill together. So you're 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 marrying in order to because that's part of your job to become more perfect and more godly. But one of the ways that you do that is is through having children. So, of course, you're supposed to have love, no question about it. But that's not the, the A of it. The, 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 a, the, the love is going to be a result of those things. In other words, it's more likely that you'll have love and a sustainable, lasting love if you see yourself as, as a partner, partner and, a, and, a, and, and really a, a half of a greater whole in which you have a, a purpose and a goal in which you're trying to achieve. And you do that together as, you know, you, you do it together as one, as almost one entity. And the things that you're doing, of course, is achieving your purpose in life and uh, li living a godly life and giving to others, etc., etc., and also uh, having children is a major part of that. So in marriage and Judaism, it's many other considerations, not just how many kids will are going to be had. It's also love is important, uh, but it's love in a way that's not kind of an obsessive love, but kind of a love that grows through uh, sense of common purpose. Sense of common purpose. Really, when I was dating, I remember my uh, my Rosh Hashiva, my my the head of my yeshiva, who I was very close with Rabbi Glazel. He said you need two things. He said you need to have um, you need to, you need to have the same goals in life, and she has to have good character traits. She has to be a kind, giving person. And so if you have two people who are kind and giving, so they have the, 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 the basis with which to you know, build a life together, and you also need to have something which, you need to have the same goals. And so you're, because if you don't have the same goals, and you're gonna, uh, 10 years from now, even if you love each other now, things happen and you'll end up in one place and she'll end up in a different place and it's not gonna work. And so if you have the same goals and you're sort of living for common purpose, you'll sort of grow together. Right, and I also think that today we have a very individualistic sense of marriage, that it's just, you two together but you're really part of a community and even if maybe you're not having tons of kids if you have a strong bond you can give to the community in other ways like right. babysitting no i mean that's a very small example but like right. you know you yeah. could also be a parental figure sure for and if you so it's not it's not just your kids it's like 
communities kids in a way, right? Right, right. There's a lot of things you can you can achieve together beside outside of having children. Right. Yeah. What would you say to those folks who are like, you know, I I can't have kids. I have to like write my dissertation or I have to, uh, you know, I haven't made partner yet. Like I work 50 hours a week. I mean, for them, they might say, well, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair to the child. But you might say, no, 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 it, it is fair to the child. It's just, you know. You're just not seeing the bigger picture. Like, what do you say to those folks? Right. Uh, that's, that's, it's really something yeah. that I mentioned before is that, that people have this image of what's pleasurable and what they enjoy, but it's really a very low level of pleasure. Like, you know, going to concerts or, or even sports or things like that, of course they're necessary for life. Uh, you know, good food or, you know, enjoying, you know, entertainment. Those are things that are necessary for life. But it's, it's a very low level of pleasure. There's so many more pleasures out there that are so much deeper and, and they bring out a much deeper side of ourselves. The pleasures of family and love, the pleasures of, of creativity, the pleasures of meaning and purpose. And those are things that, that postmodern man cannot really um, understand or really, they can understand it, they just don't really focus on it all. And it's really a shame, they're really missing out so much by focusing only on, on the level one pleasure of making money or, or just enjoying themselves in a very shallow sense. I would tell people that once you have a child, as difficult as it is, there's, you'll feel a sense of, uh, such a, a, a deeper sense of self, a deeper sense of purpose, a, a, a deeper sense of happiness and, and sharing. And the proof is, is that just look at and, and listen to what people say at a funeral. What, what do people talk about? They don't really, they might mention that, you know, this person loved theater or the arts or whatever, but it, what's most important is what type of friend they were, you know, what type of, what, what, what did they contribute back to society and to their communities? What type of parent they were? You know, those are really the things, what type of legacy do they, li- do they leave? And those are things, we all know this intuitively, that those are the most important things. And so I would urge people that when you hit, you know, 30, 35, Think about what most of your life's pleasure is going to be like. It's really not going to be the, the sort of like the base pleasures that we experience. It's really going to be children, family, purpose, meaning, you know, things like that. And is this in Judaism as well, this teaching? Sure. I mean, Where it's, is it? it's, I, mean I, I can't, it's really the entirety of Torah. The entirety of Torah is saying... Um, and, and it's really the book of Kohelis, the book of Ecclesiastes that like King Solomon wrote. It was really the whole purpose. It was like, you know, stop. He says, have a lot of volume over Kohelis, a kolo hevel, right? Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. You know, it's, stop wonder, you know, worrying about all the, all the physical mundane pleasures of life. It's, it's really nothing. It's really vanity. There's so much more to life. You know, the things that are under the sun, the physical world is really vanity. There's so much that is above the sun, that, you know, in, in a much deeper uh, sense of self which is important. And, and it had to be King Solomon who was the one who wrote that book because what, did King, what do we know about King Solomon? He was the wealthiest. He had a thousand wives. He, had, he conquered lands. He, was, he had everything. And even he said that it was all vanity. So specifically, King Solomon had to be that one to bring that message. So that's really the entirety of that, that book. He's saying that idea. Getting back to Rachel and Leah, you know, 
we talk like when you name your child, some children are named Leia, some are named Rachel, right? Um, is it is it okay to kind of prefer one character to the other to have your favorite, so to speak? Like, you know what? I'm more of a Leia guy. I'm more of a Rachel guy. Sure, yeah. In the Torah, there's always um, many of the patriarchs and matriarchs are seen as arch- archetypical uh, uh, char- uh, certain types of character traits which are, are very specific. That's certainly a big feature of Jewish thought. So certainly if you identify with one over the other, then go for it. We don't have to say, oh, I love them all equally. It can be, I, I no. prefer this one. It's, it's my favorite yeah, you could say like the, this. Really, this this character really speaks to me. I, I, I identify with him. Like me personally, I mean, I, I, I if you were asking me if I was Avram Yitzchak or Yaakov, I certainly would more feel like Avram personally. Mm. I wouldn't. I, I would have a hard time identifying with Yitzchak in, in spite of how holy he was. It's not a knock on Yitzchak. It's just not who I am. But it doesn't mean that it's one is any less than the other. Listen, I think I feel more like a Yaakov. And for my peeps, I truly care. Because without some of them, I wouldn't be here. And they all know how I feel. The suckers be like playing themselves to have massive fear. And uh, just one more question, also very important. Do you have a uh, prediction for the Dolphins this year? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that they get their offense in, 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 uh, ready to go. And uh, Tua Tungavailoa becomes the quarterback he was meant to become. And um, I'm eagerly awaiting a uh, Super Bowl championship. I don't know when that will happen, though. How many, how many wins are you predicting? Probably uh, 11 or 12. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. All right, so uh, that was Mayor Goldberg of Rutgers University, and it was a pleasure having you on the show, and I hope you come back again for another interview. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Mayor and I conducted this interview at his house in Lakewood, New Jersey, at the height of yet another swelteringly hot summer typical for the mid-Atlantic region. As I write this, the Miami Dolphins stand at 8-8, eight eight, a bit short of Mayer's prediction, but nevertheless not so far off the mark. And as for me, I still have yet to marry a Rachel or a Leia of my own, let alone to have children. After speaking with Mayer, my position on the Torah's portrayal of the lovesick Jacob has softened. I originally argued that the Torah depicted Jacob in preferring the infertile and beautiful Rachel at the expense of Leah as playing with fire and recklessly jeopardizing his legacy. Mayer made many shrewd observations during our chat, if I may say so, one of which was that there is no evidence or suggestion in the Torah that Jacob was behaving foolishly in falling for Rachel. We tend to presume, or at least I tended to presume, that the Torah, as not only a sacred book, but as the very expression of Hashem himself, is beyond the cinematic, beyond the melodramatic, beyond the quintessential love story. And yet, as I reread Bereshit this year, I was struck by how much the Torah goes out of its way to sentimentalize and even celebrate Jacob's unwavering, teenager-like love for Rachel. It may be that the Torah was just as much in love with Rachel and Jacob 
as he was with her. Thank you.